this is Charlotte Frell, your own Sister C, with a spinoff from our Powered by Age story series. Today, you're hearing a collaboration of poetry and storytelling by Neil Ryan and Leslie Hebert. It was inspired by a poem that Leslie read at uh, a live open mic session. And so you're going to hear a million, million stars intersected with poetry. So first we're starting with Neil Ryan, who is an author, storyteller, poet, Leslie, who is a writer, writing teacher, poet, and speaker, and I'll let them take it away. Million, million, million stars. It's cold out, put a hat on. Do you know the Northern Ontario winter, the crisp, cold, crystal clear Northern Ontario winter? Yes, the cold can be bitter, not to mention the chill added by the wind. And it can snow so hard, one cannot see beyond a few feet. But in its quieter, kinder, gentler, white blanket moment, it can awe-inspire, it can, it can be awe-inspiring in its beauty. Picturesque scenes of snow-covered pine trees in a landscape of sheer beauty with an exhilarating freshness that demands one to come out and play. Yes, come out and play. After all, I was only five and a half years old when we moved into the lumber camp, Camp Ebatibi. 220 was a lumber camp halfway up the west shore of Lake Nipigon, about 180 or more or less miles due north of Thunder Bay, where we live. Where we lived from the fall of 1945 until the spring following my ninth birthday. My father was the stores manager, and he, along with the camp cook and the woods manager, were permitted to have their families with them. So along with my mother and one of my two older brothers, off we went to camp. I was homeschooled in reading, writing, and math, but mostly I was allowed to explore and roam the camp at will. The lumber camp was the perfect teacher that suited the unquenchable curiosity of this young explorer. I learned how blacksmiths make and mount shoes on the dozen workhorses that were used to haul the felled trees. I learned how it is for cooks and cookies to feed 50 or so hungry men three meals a day cooked on wood-fired stoves. And from the fall of 1945, when we moved into the lumber camp, until we left in the late spring of 1949, after my ninth birthday, the camp taught me about life both in its sorrows and in its joys. Memory. Memory becomes archaeology as I dig down among the broken pots and ancient bones of my past to bring precious memories into the light. Only shreds and shards remain. Shattered brick and plaster lie in the crater of a bombed-out house still ruined eight years after the war, where I played, where I searched the rubble, seeking traces of the children who lived there before the Blitz, unearthing nothing 
but a broken candlestick and a smashed plate. From the river. The camp was situated overlooking the Pachkakagan River, which was our source of fresh water. During the summer, a hand pump was used to draw water from the river, but in the winter, when the river was frozen and it was safe to take a team of horses onto the river, ice was drawn, ice water was drawn from a hole chopped in the ice. Bucket by bucket, the water was drawn and spilled into a huge square wooden tub that rested on a ski-equipped sled. After filling, the sled was then pulled up the hill to supply the water needs of the camp. The day I learned about our winter source was also the day I learned about fluid dynamics and to never hitch a ride on the back of a sled carrying a water-filled tub. The tub was taller than I, but at the back, I was able to climb onto the sled, holding onto the top edge of the water-filled tub. As the sled started up the hill, the equivalent of at least a bucket full of ice-cold water leapt from the back of the tub, splashing over my face, mittens, hands, and down the inside and outside of the parka. In spite of the sunny day, at minus 20 degrees weather, my water-soaked parka and mittens began to freeze solid in a few minutes. I was most grateful that my mother and a warm cabin was only a short, stiff walk up the hill. Water. Hot water flows on demand into my washing machine and out of my shower. I am grateful for the gift I have not always enjoyed such liquid bounty. When I was a child, Water wept from a single tap into the scullery sink and rode from there, bucket by bucket, into the gas boiler. On Sunday, boiling water was hauled, bucket by bucket, to the cloud-gray tub by the soft warmth of the hearth, by the golden light of the flickering flames, where we bathed in turn, breathing the warm odor of coal smoke. On Monday, the boiler was a ravenous beast, gorging on soap and bedding and a sapphire paper twist, a taste of bluing for bright white sheets. My mother, hands boiled scarlet and chapped from bleach, twisted sheets around her arms into a curling snake to squeeze water from the wash and hang it out to dry and smoke in the damp London air. I didn't know pigs could swim. At the far eastern end of the camp was a pigsty where several pigs were kept for sweet, for fresh meat. One fall day, a sow dropped eight piglets. They were small enough to escape the confines of the sty and wander throughout the camp. Down from the main part of the camp at the river below, was a narrow bridge. It was really just boards nailed onto a log boom that floated right at the river level. 
And in the fall, the bridge caught lots and lots of leaves as they drifted, drifted downstream. The strong afternoon sun tended to dry out the top layer, which the fresh piglets appeared to be dry land. They would step out onto the leaves and plop, down they would go. A few seconds later, a little pig would pop back up, squealing loudly and paddling their way to shore. I remember laughing out loud at their antics. I didn't know. Never saw a pig, never saw a cow, never rode a horse, didn't know how. I hated bread crusts. I saved them for the sparrows, rubbed them to crumbs to scatter on the cement in our backyard. Never saw a pig, never saw a cow, never rode a horse, didn't know how. I chased our cat around the house, but she never let me catch her. I didn't know she chased sparrows. The boy next door had no cat to chase. He played with snails, raced them along the top of the brick wall between our backyards. I didn't know snails could race. Never saw a pig, never saw a cow, never rode a horse, didn't know how. A horse with no name. Winter wasn't the only harsh thing in Northern Ontario. The reality is that life in the camp was harsh and at times dangerous work. The job of the cutters was using hand saws and axes to fell and trim the spruce balsam and a few jack pine trees. The trees were cut into 16-foot lengths and then dragged onto the frozen river using horses. When the river ice broke in the spring, the logs floated downriver to be collected into large booms and then to sawmills or paper mills. One winter, a horse fell through the ice, resulting in a broken foreleg. There was no vet, uh, veterinarian and no uh, economic sense to try and save it. So a horse with a broken leg was a dead horse. A rifle was brought to the river and the horse was killed. Then using a team of horses, the unfortunate creature was dragged to an isolated area some distance from the work area and left for the wolves. Most of the carcass was gone within a week a winter bonus for the wolves, the foxes, and the other carrion eaters of the forest. The horse. Fleeting traces of a far-off childhood still arouse my senses. The sound of church bells, the taste of dust and incense, the gentle touch of a horse's tongue as I fed her an apple. The gentle mare, quiet in her traces, no longer pulls the apple cart along a cobbled street. The horse died long ago. The street, slated for a redevelopment, was bulldozed into oblivion. Bear, bear. 
Fall in northern Ontario, wrapped in golden yellows, reds, and sepias, can be inspiringly beautiful. It was a radiant fall day as I walked past the blacksmith's barn. I noticed the big doors were open and heard the clang, clang, ping, ping sound of the blacksmith working. Beyond the horse stables and the hay barn, past the pig pen, and some distance away was the camp garbage dump. One of my pleasures was using the tin cans I had positioned along the top edge of the dump as targets for my BB gun. I hadn't even gone as far as the spot where the garbage was tipped into the dump when I took my first shot. The shot dinged off a can. I started to reload for another shot when seemingly from nowhere, the biggest black bear the world had ever seen stood up. Now the cardinal rule of woods lore is to never run away from an encounter with a bear. The brilliance of the bear mind is that anything that runs away must be food or it wouldn't be running. I had yet to acquire that bit of wisdom, so I ran. I ran as hard and as fast as my eight-year-old legs would carry me past the pig pen I flew, past the hay storage and into the barn looking for the safety of the blacksmith yelling, bear, bear. The blacksmith was a huge man to begin with, and armed with a forge hammer, he probably could have subdued a bear of any size. But by the time I, the, he got to the barn door, there was no bear to be seen. From then on, my momentary island of refuge, the big bur burly Swedish blacksmith laughed and teased me relentlessly about hunting imaginary bears with a BB gun. Bears, if you go down to the woods today, you better go in disguise. Goldilocks sleeps in a just right bed full of baby bear's porridge. Mama bear wanted to hug her, but Papa bear growled and scared her all the way home. If you go down to the woods today, you better not go alone. Bears like Paddington and Pooh are cute, not scary. I loved my teddy. I hugged him every night until I fell asleep and until his fur wore off. For every bear that ever there was will gather there for certain because today's the day the teddy bears have their picnic. The Trapper. Old Joe was likely a Métis or Indian, and nobody ever spoke about his heritage, so I didn't know. He wasn't any different from the Finns, the Swedes, the Ukrainians, and the other immigrants that made up the cutters. He was just old Joe who ran a trap, trap line along the river. He lived without shelter of any kind, and once in a while he came out of the bush to visit the camp. He was always welcome to eat food from the mess hall and would sleep in the blacksmith's barn. Old Joe taught me how to make a rabbit snare and how to make a snore shelter. He told me that if you sleep outdoors in winter, you'll never freeze to death because the cold will always wake you up first. One day, as he, as he was washing up, 
he had me stick my finger in the pail of water beside him. He told me the importance of a person is measured by the size of the hole left when he pulled his finger out. I laughed and told him I was never going to leave a hole in the water. At the time, I thought he was just teasing me. But years on, I realized my friend, the old Indian, was a pseudo-Zen master, offering me a lesson about ego. Lines. Mother hung clean boiled bed sheets on a washing line out back. The lady upstairs leaned out too dangerously far as she hung her line of sheets far above my head from the upstairs window to the top of a high pole by the brick back wall. I watched the boy next door race snails along the wall between us. They left silver lines along the cement while he waited with a brick to smash the shell of the winner, the first across the line. The West Indians across the street, probably near froze to death their first London winter. They never ran trap lines. They danced the laughing conga line along the street, banging out the rhythm of the dance on pots and pans and offered me a lesson about joy. The adventure continues. My years at Camp 220 were filled with adventure. In those years, I learned many fascinating things about the world I lived in. However, there is one experience that has been my constant memory over the ensuing years. It was the winter of 1948-1949 when I was not yet nine years old. With only one set of skis between us, my brother and I and one of the young cutters took turns skiing the hill beside our cabin down to the frozen river. I had had my turn, so after dragging the skis back up the hill, I brushed the snow off a, a pile of wood siding slats and lay down to wait my turn. Now the dark comes early in winter so I had seen the night sky many times before, but I don't ever remember having brought it to conscious attention. That night, for the first time, I became aware of what I was seeing. In the unimpeded openness of a crystal clear Northern Ontario winter's night, the sky was ablaze with stars displaying vastness beyond vastness, immensity beyond immensity. A shock of realization ran through me. I had no words for the sense of awe that I was feeling and no place to put the awareness of the immensity of the starlit sky. This was the truth. We humans are minuscule in this vastness. I was nearly nine years old looking up at uncountable dots of silver, countless tiny lights tinged with, with hints of blues and reds floating on a sea of blackness. Awestruck by the magnificence of the sky, I was totally humbled by the sight of the heavens above me. There were a million, million stars 
And I felt a sense of awe and a sense of wonder to see this vastness beyond vastness. Life's mundane day-to-day drama had been drawn back for a moment, and behind the curtain was the truth that as conscious beings, we are living an amazing adventure. We are allowed to recognize and appreciate the wonder of this universe that we inhabit. My limited knowledge of the millions dead from the recent Second World War made me aware of life's transient nature. And in this immensity of time and space, the realization that I am less than minuscule was not going to ensure my survival. So I concluded this might be a good time to ask, please God, I want to live to be very old. My almost nine-year-old thinking saw the time from now to the end of the year 2000 seemed forever away, so I asked, I want to live to the year 2000. Now, I am sincerely grateful that request was granted and thankful that request has been renewed annually, one year at a time. The gift given me at the moment of realizing the immensity of the universe was a desire to see behind the curtain again. I know and understand the truth of the, I want to know the truth of the universe. That has been my life's journey. Perhaps that is all we humans seek, each in our own way, to understand the meaning of this vast puzzle we call the universe. If we survive, and I believe we will, we will eventually solve the mystery behind the creation of the million, million stars. Stars. I breathe chill, damp winter nights beneath gray clouds and sulfurous green fog. I only looked up at the heavens to feel the rain wash down on my face. I opened my mouth to catch the smoky raindrops and taste them on my tongue. But then I left the city. I escaped the bomb damage and the smoky skies in the middle of winter, shivering on my mother's lap in an icy moving truck. I breathed clean air. Rabbits and hedgehogs came to my garden from the wild wood and the stars in the clear winter sky took my breath away. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you, Neil. That was fantastic. Thank you for joining me at the creative intersection of stories and poetry, a spinoff of the Powered by Age podcast program. Today, our featured creative writers were Neil Ryan and Leslie Hebert. I'm your host, Charlotte Sister C. Farrell, and now I'm going to invite our guests to share a little bit about their process and how this collaboration of Million Million Stories came into being. Well, we've already uh, said this was inspired by uh, Le- uh, Leslie and I uh, met occasionally at, at a, a poetry open mic, and uh, 
Leslie read a poem that featured uh, breaking up crumbs, and we heard it today. The, 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 anyway, and when she finished and the, when the poetry was over, I said to Leslie, I have a short story. Maybe we can merge the two of them together. And in her brilliance, she said, that's a novel idea. So here we are. This is it. This was our this was our our collaboration. Yeah, and I love Neil's stories to, to begin with, and they seem to be a fit for some things that I'd already written, and then other poems that I put in, I wrote especially to go with Neil's stories. So you know, to to really mesh them together. So it's a brilliant new genre, <laughs> and uh, thank you so much for sharing a million, million stories, and I'm sure our listeners might have a million, million new ways of thinking about pigs and horses and all of the things that you brought forth in your story. You know, what's interesting is that it really did teach me about life from when I was, uh, from when I was five, we lived in a, my father came back from the war. He never was overseas, but he was a civilian uh, something or other. Uh, and uh, he got a job at Abitibi. And by the fall of 1945, we were moved into the lumber camp. And, you know, I love Leslie's picture of London. You know, there was a blitz. There was bombs falling on here. We never had any of the, any of that in Northern Ontario. But the closest we came to anything about the war was food rationing and the fact that father was gone from when I guess I guess he was there till I was almost two, but then then he was drafted as a civilian. Um, manager for a lumber camp so and the cutters in the lumber camp were prisoners of war and my father was the quartermaster that looked after the supplies so so 1945 we're off to a lumber camp and this is the story of my I was past nine in the spring, late spring of 1950. No, yeah, 1950, I guess. Yeah, and so I'm a post-war baby. I was born in 1948, but um, where I lived in London, the damage was still everywhere, you know, uh, as late as probably 1952, 53. And we were still on rationing after the war. I remember being on rationing as a child, even though the war was over. And it was a time of change, too. Like with the, um, like I say, I think I referenced the, the Caribbean people moving into the street at one point. Um, yeah, it was, it was a period of change on my street and in London and people moving around. Yeah. Yeah, I think that will bring up memories for a lot of us other post-war babies and things that you could apply from that time to this time where we're in a great season of change with the pandemic. 
So thank you again, Leslie and Neil. And if you like stories and poems, watch out for the next creative intersection of stories and poetry, a spinoff of the Powered by Age podcast series produced by the 411 Senior Center with collaborative sponsorship by the city of Vancouver. Thank you.